the Mainline Podcast. I'm Adam Jacquez. We've got a softball sweep to talk about, baseball split a series with a top 10 team, and then of course football, we're going to dive into the top three things that must happen for OU to return to Arlington to play for a Big 12 championship. Uh, Before we jump in though, Tyler, it's good to see your mugshot. Yeah, good to see the mugshot, Adam. Uh, A lot of good things happening right now in the world of OU athletics, but kind of have to put a little bit of that on the back burner this week. It is Masters Week after all. Adam, it's my favorite week uh, in the entire calendar year in sports, you know, from from Monday all the way until Sunday night. Uh, The Masters, Augusta National, Augusta, Georgia, the storylines, the pageantry, the golf course. It's uh, it it is by far and away my favorite weekend or favorite week of the year in sports. Uh, It's been nonstop golf channel, CBS, got the books going on, the Masters app on the phone. Cannot wait for this thing to get to uh, get going on on Thursday morning. But yeah. I'm doing really well, Adam. It's uh, <laughs> weather out here in Colorado. I'm, I'm starting to find out is just as bipolar as it is in the state of Oklahoma. I played golf. It was 65 and sunny on Monday. Fast forward less than 12 hours later, we've got two to three inches of snow on the ground, and I'm walking around with uh, my heavy Carhartt jacket on. But other than that, things are good. Exciting to talk some OU athletics, and let's just kind of kick things off with softball. Yeah. Absolutely. I predicted a sweep last weekend when we recorded uh, for softball and uh, oh, you got it, although I don't think it was exactly the way that I would have expected it. Um, you know, three come from behind wins for the Sooners starting off with that Friday night game in Oklahoma City, a attendance record uh, just under 9,000 mm-hmm. there at Hall of Fame Stadium, an attendance record for the regular season, I should mention. Uh, let's start there with that particular game and kind of that special environment. I thought it was pretty cool to see just the, the way the fans were able to stripe out the stadium, um, the, the come from behind win there. And um, certainly special. And I hate talking about how softball is, is a growing sport because uh, I'd really like to not talk about that because you don't talk about that for major sports like college football or, or basketball. You don't say, oh, it's growing, even though it actually is growing year to year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how you know you've arrived. But I feel like softball is kind of arriving for um, not just OU, but the sport in general. Well, and I think that you do kind of have to talk about, you know, the way that Oklahoma softball is helping grow, you know, the brand help grow the game of collegiate softball across the country. Uh, and I think that Patty even talked about it, you know, in some of her press conferences within the last week, talking about how, you know, when she got to OU 20 plus years ago, there were maybe, you know, just a couple hundred fans in the seats uh, to watch this team play. And now here you are, fast forward to the year 2023, you've got almost 9,000 people in attendance for a regular season matchup. Of, of OU Texas up in Oklahoma City so um, I think it, it's a it's a testament to kind of the current state of college softball right now but it also speaks volumes on how how great of a job and you know how big of an impact you know Patty Gasso and the OU softball brand has had on this sport as a whole so yeah it was very it was very good to see you know striping the uh, striping the ballpark uh, OU did a fantastic job of that. Ultimately, you know, the game obviously didn't start out the way we anticipated it uh, going to Adam with, you know, Jordy giving up the leadoff home run, but she was fantastic after that, you know, giving up just one hit throughout the rest of the game, her going the distance. And uh, we knew that it was going to kind of be a dogfight. Texas had the pitching staff that, you know, was going to have the opportunity to give this lineup uh, the toughest challenge that they've seen yet. And the Texas pitchers definitely had, you know, their moments where they were successful, but also, uh, as the scores would allude to in the three-game sweep, uh, Oklahoma's offense found a way to get after the Texas pitchers. So very good performance. I liked what I saw from Jordy. The biggest thing that I took away from watching Jordy Ball's performance on Friday night especially is, you know, it was pretty clear that she didn't have 
everything going uh, 100%. You know, uh, command was still a little bit of an issue. You know, she didn't have full command of all of her pitches all game long. But again, anytime you cannot have your A game and you can still find out a way to to know uh, just give up one run, two hits against a top 10 team in the country, um, <laughs> chances are you're doing something right. So again, well, we talked about it all year long. This pitching staff uh, is, is just fantastic. They showed that again this weekend, and the bats continue to stay hot like we've seen you know, throughout the first three months of the season. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway was just the, the calm and collected manner that this team presented throughout all three games, but especially on Saturday's uh, performance. Um, you know, get to the bottom of the seventh inning, you're, you're down and you get timely hits from Jada Coleman, mm-hmm. who's certainly a candidate for National Player of the Year, and Kinsey Hansen in the walk-off on Saturday. Um, and you just saw that, you know, it's, it's good to see that. You know you're at home and everything, but I feel like that's just going to be a building block because this team is going to mm-hmm. go play at number two Oklahoma State here at uh, the beginning of May, a little more than a month away, or I guess almost exactly a month away. And mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot tougher to do those types of things. If you get down to the bottom or I guess the top of the seventh, cause you'd be the visiting team in Stillwater, but to have to grind and find that, that hit that, you know, uh, breaks that game open, I think it's going to be really tough, but mm-hmm. you have that experience that you're building on through a series with Texas. Um, so it's good to see. And, and Texas, you know, earned my respect a little bit more than I was given them before this series. I still don't know if they're going to be someone that returns to Oklahoma City for the World Series, but uh, we we shall see. Uh, I do want to ask, you know, it's a, a pretty unique event to go put that Friday night game in Oklahoma City. Do you think that we could see that again in future years, especially as some big-time SEC opponents come into town like Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, Texas A&M, a team that may not have a chance to play in Oklahoma City otherwise? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, that's a knock on the Aggies. Um, Do you want to see something like this continue? I'm not necessarily sure as Oklahoma makes the transition to the SEC that we would want to do that for an SEC opponent. I think that obviously with the new stadium coming you know, early next season, OU is going to have – you know, not quite 9,000 seats, but they are going to have, you know, uh, almost double the amount of seats that they have right now. So you're still going to be able to host a really good crowd, create a really good home game atmosphere. One thing that I do hope continues, you know, w- w- with Bedlam moving forward, obviously we know soft- or football, uh, that game is probably not going to be played anytime soon for the foreseeable future. We'll see what happens with basketball and some of the other sports. But I can't help but think, Adam, that Hall of Fame Stadium in Oklahoma City would just be the perfect you know, kind of halfway point for these two programs to meet once, maybe twice a year, you know, host a Friday night matchup where you've got Stillwater versus Norman, all of those fans from both fan bases, you know, you know, coming to uh, that softball down there in Oklahoma City. I think that that would be, you know, tremendous for, you know, both programs would be tremendous for the fan bases. It would be, uh, you know, tremendous for the state of Oklahoma, especially with the two best programs in the NCAA, in NCAA, you know, just, you know, with less than 70 miles away from each other so while i don't think that you know moving forward i don't think that um softball you know the the stadium in oklahoma city could serve as a permanent you know once or twice a year for oklahoma versus an a&m or an alabama but i definitely think moving forward if you have an opportunity to get together with oklahoma state for one or two games a year i definitely think that that's the stadium where you know you choose to do that because it's going to be able to hold you know the the amount of people that that game is going to warrant, uh, and it's sir, it's a great location and it serves the needs of both fan bases and both teams. I I kind of agree with you. I think that would be a really special event to have Bedlam in that stadium. 
On mm. one hand, though, I don't want to give a bunch of seats to OSU fans, and I want to protect, you know, as a former season ticket seller, I want to protect yeah. that season ticket package uh, for OU fans. Um, but I think what a flex it would be to have Auburn or Alabama or whoever come to Oklahoma City and say, hey, you know, random Friday night in March or April, uh, we're just going to sell out 9,000, you know, plus seats uh, here in Oklahoma City. Oh, oh, and by the way, we kind of own this ballpark where all the national championships are held. Um, that would be mm-hmm. such a, a flex on all the new SEC programs that are coming uh, to to Oklahoma, um, and a great way to start off a series. You know, still play Saturday and Sunday um, down in Norman like they did this time. That would be something pretty cool. Adam, I do kind of want to point out. You know, there's been there's been so much talk over the last couple of days. You know, we've started out this podcast. You know, talking about the performances of Jordy Ball. You know, uh, Starocko, Nicole May, the timely hitting that we've seen uh, all season long, especially this past weekend of Kinsey Hanson, of Jada Coleman, Riley Boone getting you know the the rally started. You know, ultimately Oklahoma finding their way to come back. You know, in the seventh inning, tied and then ultimately walk it off. But, oh, by the way, Tiari Jennings was just named Big 12 Player of the Week, hitting, you know, just over 700 on the weekend, two home runs, eight RBIs. She was Big 12 Player of the Week. Oh, by the way, she was also National uh, Player of the Week to go along with Jordy Ball's, you know, uh, uh, you know, game week honors. So, again, this team can hurt you so many different directions. The pitching staff is dominant. They've got four arms that can beat any given opponent on any given night. And then, you know, you've got the lineup where not just the top nine – can beat you in so many different ways, but then you've also got, you know, key, you know, substitutes uh, that have the ability to hit the long ball, you know, to, you know, play small ball, you know, steal bases, different things like that. So again, we've talked about it all season long. What team out there is going to be able to beat this team two games out of three? Um, We've already, you know, we've already crossed one of those teams off the, uh, off the uh, list. Um, Baylor's coming up here in just a couple of weeks towards the third weekend in the month of April. That's going to be fun. The series rematch, the only team on the schedule that's given Oklahoma a loss so far this season. It's going to be fun to watch Patty's uh, team get back up there in Waco. And then we, of course, I, I think it's pretty it's pretty easy, and I know a lot of fans are guilty. I'm, I'm one of them. Uh, I'm already, you know, starting to look towards the the last weekend of the regular season when OU does make the trip up to Stillwater uh, with what's going to be number one versus number two, most likely. Uh, there's going to be a lot of eyes on Stillwater that weekend. Definitely. Quick comments on uh, Mike uh, White and uh, the Texas coach <laughs> no. who kind of inferred that OU was cheating in the portal, then tried to cover it up, saying he didn't really mm-hmm. say that. Um, Adam, we've known about this for the last couple of years. And again, I hate to talk about this, you know, as a grown man, you know, talking about one of the grown man, but you just watch the antics of my, Mike, why, whether it's flipping off the umpire, whether it's crying about balls and strikes, he just comes across as just a whiny little bitch. He cries after every <laughs> ball and strike, every bad call. He tried to walk back his comments with Patty and, and OU. Then to make matters worse for the man, he starts bitching and whining in the post game to the media about how he does, doesn't have the same resources at Texas compared to everybody else, especially OU. That was pretty damn funny when you know what that school up in Austin is doing in NIL and the extreme measures that they're going to to get players, you know, to their school across all sports. So again, uh, if there was one team that we could have swept, it's always good to beat Texas. But the fact that that man is the head coach of Texas softball, it just makes those three victories that much sweeter. Yeah, you can hate Patty and you can hate OU because of their success on the field. And if I was another team, I would absolutely despise what OU's been able to do in softball. Yeah, uh, but you can't knock Patty for you know her her lack of class or um, her sketchiness in recruiting or cheating or anything like that. There's just mm-hmm. there's nothing there. Um, and if you 
think that, then you're just clearly not plugged into anything that's going on with OU softball. So don't want to dwell well, too much Adam, on that. But Well, Adam, to take it one step further, the money and the salary that Mike Watt is making, the exposure that is on Texas softball right now, the level that it is at, I think you could. it's probably a pretty safe bet to say that Patty Gasso and what Oklahoma has done over the last 20 years growing the game has played a huge part in Texas softball kind of rising and gaining popularity and also their, you know, them finding their own share of success. So, uh, again, we, we we had a couple of tweets that, that went viral because of the Mike White antics, you know, over the course of last week. And, again, I mean, pardon my French, but you know what? If you're going to poke the bear – you know, fuck around and find out, and it, no doubt about it, Mike White and his crew, you know, you, you mess with the bull, you get the horns, and you got your ass beat uh, in Oklahoma City and, and in Norman over the weekend. So couldn't happen to a better program, couldn't happen to a better coach, uh, and we'll see what happens once postseason play gets here. Hopefully we get a chance to match up with them again. No doubt, and I couldn't say it better myself. You mentioned our, our tweets and our Twitter game. We did have several things that go viral, including a tweet that just went out earlier this week. We asked mm-hmm. uh, everyone on Twitter, hey, what must happen for OU to return to Arlington and have a chance, not just win, but to have a chance to win a Big 12 uh, title this fall in football? And we got almost 100 responses already in a little more than 24 hours of uh, people that had uh, you know, a variety of different things that they, they want to see changed as we go through the 2023 season. Tyler, you and I have grabbed our, our top three that we think you know have to happen. Uh, we're going to kind of weave in some of these Twitter responses that we got as well, um, just to highlight where things go. Tyler, do you want to go first with your number one, though? Yeah, I'll kind of kick things off here. Uh, n- number one for me, Adam, you know, when you kind of look at obviously Oklahoma is not going to have the likes of a Baker Mayfield, a Kyler Murray, a Jalen Hurst, somebody that's going to be able to go out there and score 50 to 55 points a game, be able to cover, you know, some of the holes and deficiencies of this Oklahoma defense, like we've seen over the past few years. So number one for me, when looking at what Oklahoma must do to find their way back to competing for a big 12 championship in Arlington, it starts with difference makers in the trenches, the defensive line, be an asset, not a liability. Oklahoma's defense last year was ranked 99th in the country giving up almost 30 points a game close to 190 rushing yards a game and the stat that's the most alarming to me adam 28 stacks in 13 games last year seven of those were from linebackers and four and a half of those came from reggie grimes in the first couple of weeks of the season so the pass rush pass rush excuse me uh was pretty much non-existent from the defensive from the defensive line for most of last year so you've got to have your veterans like an Isaiah Coe, Jordan Kelly, Marcus Tripling it's time for those guys to step up and then you've also got to look at some of the young guys that are not really young anymore got a couple years already on campus Reggie Grimes, Ethan Downs, I'm going to throw our Mason Thomas into that category as well. Who's going to ramp up their play this year and, you know, not just be a guy that takes up space or a guy that eats blocks, but who's a guy that can come in there and find their way into the backfield, get some tackles for loss, or find a way on a third down and five, figure out a way to to beat your guy and get after Quinn Ewers and get that pivotal sack in the Cotton Bowl that can kind of change the momentum of the game. And then kind of my last little piece here, Adam, on the the difference makers in the trenches, P.J. Adebarre needs to grow and be a playmaker at least in the third down obvious passing situations right here we've seen him on tape we've seen him in person 
the guy is as impressive of a prospect on the defensive side of the football that Oklahoma has seen in Norman in, I don't know, since maybe the, the Gerald McCoy days, uh, maybe a few more towards the uh, the early 2000s. But uh, P.J. needs to step up. The transfers need to pan out. Obviously, we lost Jalen Redmond, a couple more guys, you know, to graduation to the NFL. Rondell Bothroyd, Jacob Lacey, Trace Ford, Devin Sears. At least one, if not two, of those guys needs to pan out and be a difference maker for this team because what we've seen from Brent Venable's defenses, you know, for the better part of the last 20 years, what gives his defense, his linebackers, his secondary the best opportunity to make plays? It's whenever the defensive line is able to hold up on their own and be able to, you know, uh, you know, stuff those run gaps, get after the quarterback, allow those other seven guys, uh, you know, to kind of roam free and make plays and be assignment sound. And that's the biggest thing for me, Adam. Defensive line, do not be a liability, be an asset, be a difference maker, and figure out a way to make some plays. Chad Edwards agrees with you strongly. He responded on Twitter saying that uh, linebackers essentially make plays because of a sound D line. Uh, our friend Good of the man. pod, Jordan Esco, he was kind of along the same path saying that, you know, hey, we're painfully aware of just how ordinary, ordinary that defensive line play has been in recent years, uh, and that's, that's got to change. I'm in agreement there. That was also on my list of three things that I want to see happen, And but I'll be a little bit more specific here. I'm going to be specific to Rondell Bothroyd needs to be as advertised. Uh, we need seven yep. sacks out of him uh, this year, in my opinion. He's capable of doing that. He's He's got the past record of, of doing you know that number of sacks over his junior and senior year at Wake Forest. Now he's coming into his fifth year. I think he can certainly do that. We just we we need him to be a hit out of the transfer portal for us. Uh, if we look back to 2021, OU had Isaiah uh, Thomas and uh, and Nick Benito both with seven sacks. That was the 60th ranked defense in the country in 2021. Not great. A lot of things they could have been better at. Not very good. Um, but also not really bad at the same time either. I think that defense was good enough to get OU to a Big 12 championship game in 2021. And so I think if you get Rondell Bothroyd with seven sacks, I think that's a good number for him to achieve. And then the second piece of that is our Mason Thomas needs to reach his full potential. We saw his twitchiness last year. He had a little bit of trouble staying healthy. He's got some more uh, weight on the frame at this point. He's got another year under the system to, to know what he's supposed to do to be adjusted to college life and college football. And so um, I think those are the two guys I look at and I say, okay, I think they can have the highest level of sustained reliable success from the defensive uh, line position. Trace Ford, nice guy. He's struggled with injuries. I, I have high hopes for him. I think he's an easy guy to root for. Um, has never really mm-hmm. put up more than, you know, four and a half sacks in a year. Um, and that was, you know, our leader last year was four and a half sacks um, from OU. And then PJ, love PJ, have high hopes for him. I don't know what we're going to get out of a freshman. Is he going to be up and down throughout the year? Is he going to, you know, really surge at the end of the year? Um, Reggie Grimes, we I think kind of know what he is. And Ethan Downs. I think we can get some more out of him. He might be a nice nice piece there, but I think R. Mason Thomas and Rondell Bothroyd are the two guys that we absolutely need high-level production from uh, because, you know, as, as Chad Edwards said on Twitter that we mentioned a moment ago, that just makes the rest of the defense look so much better, and I think our secondary is pretty good. I think we were pretty good last year in the secondary. Uh, they just couldn't hold up long enough with the lack of mm-hmm. pass rush. So I think that's the biggest thing that uh, was number one on my list of things that need to change. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Number two on the list for me is consistent key contributors must emerge in the wide receiver room. To me, it's the Batman and and Robin analogy. 
who is going to be the sidekick to Jaleel Farouk in this Oklahoma offense? I'm not talking about Drake Stoops. We know what we've got in Drake, and I think that many people, us two especially on this podcast, are expecting you know Drake to take his game you know even one step higher uh, than what it was a year ago. I'm talking about a guy other than Jaleel Farouk, who can go out on a Saturday, catch eight balls for 120 yards, score a couple of touchdowns, or who's going to be that guy when you're in the Cotton Bowl? Texas is bracketing Jaleel Farouk with a safety over the top, and you need a big play. Who's going to emerge and be that guy for this Oklahoma offense? We just simply don't know at this point. And honestly, Adam, that kind of concerns me a little bit going into this season. We're not used to seeing that at a place like Oklahoma with the pedigree and the tradition at that position with some of the guys that have come through this program. But for this offense, to function, for this offense to be as explosive and as efficient as Jeff Levy wants it to be, a guy or two has got to emerge from Emma Jones's room. And we feel pretty good about the offensive line right now. We feel we expect Dylan Gabriel to to be that dude once fall uh, fall ball kicks off. Uh, we're gonna kind of wait and see uh, how the tight end tight end position, how that room kind of uh, you know kind of uh, you know comes to fruition. I'm super excited about the running back position, even with Javante Barnes in a boot. It doesn't sound like that's gonna be something that's gonna impact him once we do get into the meat and potatoes of the season but we have to have some dudes out wide that can make some competitive plays in the passing game and can be a reliable asset for Dylan Gabriel as the season goes on so that's the big one for me wide receiver you've got to go out there and find one to two viable targets that can help complement what we expect from a big year in Jalil Farouk that one's interesting, and we did get several responses of, around the wide receivers, and I think that's mainly because there's just a little bit of mystery and intrigue about what we might get mm-hmm. out of that position group. I didn't really have that one in consideration for me as, as any of my bullet points, mainly because I, I can't recall a team from OU that has ever been held back specifically because of the receivers. I think it's um, – yeah, I don't, I don't want to discount the importance of the position, but I just feel like you don't win or lose too many games because of a receiver or, or, or lack thereof. Um, and OU's always had, you know, success at wide receivers. I think you'd have to go back to maybe 2014, um, probably a year where Sterling Shepard was hurt a little bit, and you had Trevor Knight um, coming off his Sugar Bowl performance. Um, There's a lot of QBs rotating in and out. I don't know if Sterling actually hit a thousand yards in that year, but I think you'd have to go back to at least 2014 to find an OU offense that didn't have a thousand yard uh, receiver. So right. I'm not not super concerned about that, but I do think it's valid. Like we definitely want to know who, that we've got some guys and playmakers there. Um, my my number two is is on the offensive side of the ball, but I went to the offensive line and. I said, hey, someone needs to beat out McCade Matower uh, for that left guard position. I think if we see a Savion Bird or a Jake Taylor or even a Caden Green, for that matter, overtake you know an upperclassman, a guy that transferred in from Cal that um, basically was just given that starting position, in my opinion, uh, because there were too many young guys and he had some experience. If we can see one of those younger guys beat him out, at this point, because we know that they're more talented. They were, they were more highly regarded coming out of high school. Um, just have to put the pieces together, develop their bodies. I think that's a good sign for this offensive line. I, I think you want your, your best, you know, strongest athletes guys out there um, that you can say, Hey, okay, now we can rely on, you know, Savion bird, for example, we know he's talented, but it, yeah. it might be between the ears for him, for example. So I think that would be a really good sign for this team because, the the more you're able to get your best players in the offensive line, the more that's going to pay dividends in game mm-hmm. six, in game eight, in game 10, when I think oh. you really need this team to be strong running the ball. You have to take pressure off of Dylan Gabriel with an mm-hmm. incredible running game that 
does truly need to be a one-two punch. You can't be an Eric Gray and then, you know, 10% of carries to Javante Barnes. It needs to be a true one-two punch, in my opinion, maybe even a third guy mixed in there because, you know, I want this team to be so run heavy that we no longer have to worry about Dylan Gabriel on third and long. Uh, it shouldn't be a concern because we're running the ball so well. So that's my number two. Yeah, and I think you make a really good point. It's going to be interesting to see what the lineup is, you know, not just the rotation, but, you know, who kind of our Bills, you know, top five, top six guys. I mean, kind of as we sit here right now, Adam, it really only kind of feels like three positions. We can pretty much pencil in who those guys are going to be. Obviously, your two tackles with Walter Rouse and Tyler Guyton. Obviously, if Andrew Rame can stay healthy, he's going to be your, you know, your center, your anchor of that offensive line. And then you've got a lot of really good, interesting pieces to kind of fill out those two guard spots. Obviously, McKay Mitchell tower is the most experienced of all those guys you know proven starter from a year ago there were a lot of times last year where we he kind of left us wanting more we were expecting more out of his play um you know obviously we'll see what he does going into year two uh, of this jeff levy scheme another year under uh, bill beanbow another year in the weight room with uh with you know schmitty but between the tower savion bird jake taylor is another one that's getting quite a bit of run uh over the course of the first few weeks of spring ball from some of the things that we've been hearing so again there's a lot of good young pieces uh it's just a matter of how can bill you know spend the next five months figuring out a way to figure out or figuring out a way to figure out uh who those top five are who he feels most comfortable rolling out there uh once arkansas state comes into town uh here in just five short months yeah what's your number two tyler uh, number two for me, and well, this is actually going to be number three for me. I've already gone through the defensive line and the wide receivers, but I kind of I thought that this would be a great way to, to tie in some of the responses that we've gotten on Twitter from this question. And the biggest thing for me that I think is going to help Oklahoma get back into contention to where they're in Arlington playing for a Big 12 championship, it's game management and playing complementary football. All four phases need to be better for Oklahoma this season. What I mean by all four phases, you've got your offense, your defense, your special teams, and that fourth phase is coaching. In-game situations, apparently, or especially, because there were a lot of moments last year, you know, whether it was sparing a timeout here, whether it was a, you know, a delay of game, uh, it, it, it kind of felt like Jeff Levy and Brent Venables found themselves in situations where, I don't know if panic or froze was the right word, but it's obvious with the late game management, some of the situations with the clock, with the play calling, with Oklahoma, you know, going 0-5 in one possession games last season, we've got to figure out a way to elevate our coaching, to figure out a way to put our players in a better situation to where, you know, in a one possession game, it's less than a handful of plays over the course of 60 minutes of football that's going to make or break your team and, you know, make or break that game and deciding, you know, whether you're on the win or the, uh, whether, you know, what side of the win and loss column you're on. So I think that going into this year, um, Brent obviously I think is going to be that much better. Um, he's just going to be more comfortable. He's He's used to this, but yeah, game management for me, and I think that uh, Bryson Gibson on Twitter compliment one another. If the defense gives up a long drive but only gives up three offense, you can't come out there and just go three and out and only spend a minute and a half out there on the field and then force the you know hand the ball over and say defense go stop them again. So got to figure out a way to play complimentary football, put drives together on offense, spell your defense, give them a little bit of a breather, and in a situation where. You know, the defense comes up with a turnover or they get a three and out offense, go out there and, you know, build on that momentum 
uh, and you know let's uh, let's go down there and score and you know give the ball back to our defense because that's just going to raise the confidence of your entire football team. It's going to raise the confidence of your coaching staff, and you're going to play better uh, a better brand of football uh, once your confidence level is higher and people feel good about what they're doing. Yeah, how many times did we see you know the momentum of a game turn as an opponent scores a touchdown? Oh, you get kick off three straight passes, maybe three a sack. Yeah. yeah, three and out and, and off the field so fast. So I, I 100% agree with Bryson uh, and our, our guy Fire Clark on Twitter. I don't know who Clark is, but I guess he should be fine. We, we know who Clark is. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. Maybe it's that Clark. But um, but yeah, he also pointed out just, you know, can't be putting your defense back out, um, you know, after a drive of a minute or 30. And I'm, honestly, that's being generous from uh, how many times we saw that last year. OU was 127th out of 131 teams in total time of possession. Mm-hmm. Um, so there needs to be more complimentary football there. Uh, I think Strubalicious Def probably did the most uh, concise way of just saying this, you know, a clear and deliberate improvement in game management. And that is time of possession. That's the flow of the offense. Um, it also comes down to, you know, some of the decision-making that, that Brent did. Some things he did were genius. Uh, we saw the special teams touchdown mm-hmm. at Iowa State. Uh, we saw special team success uh, early in the game against Texas, and then uh, nothing worked after that. But we also saw, you know, West Virginia, the decision to kick the field goal at Texas Tech, the decision, uh, you know, to kick the field goal there or not kick the field goal. Um, so there's there's a couple different things, and that was why my number three is, was right there in a line with you. You know, Brent, uh, and this is the way I phrase it, was Brent needs to take the biggest offseason leap. Uh, because I think last year, you know, this team had so many different issues from, you know, uh, roster and new new transfers and new systems and guys learning, coaches learning, you know, Brent himself learning. Um, but Brent needs to be the guy that needs to shoulder the, the most responsibility for where this team can go. And I think that's just him taking um, that massive offseason leap of, okay, how am I going to manage this game? How am I going to manage the schemes of, you know, putting my guys in the best chance to be successful. You know, we have Dylan Gabriel, we know his limitations. Um, how do we put him in the best chance to succeed? Um, how do we get younger, more athletic guys on the field and, and give them the best chance to succeed? So uh, I think Brent taking the biggest offseason leap as just a, a head coach and how he manages the games and the programs uh, will certainly go a long way. I do want to ask you, um, Dylan Gabriel, we got a lot of responses on Dylan Gabriel. A lot of people like mm-hmm. Justin Smith saying, hey, his accuracy needs to, to improve, um, you know, uh, but do you, where, where, do you, where do you stand on this one? I definitely think that Dylan Gabriel needs to take a step up. Um, consistency, I think, you know, from some of the responses we got on, on Twitter, consistency, you know, that that is the big word. Um, just because there were so many times last year where, Dylan would play just really, really good stretches of football, but then he also might go a couple of drives where, you know, he misses a wide open guy down the field or, you know, he misses back-to-back throws over the middle. You know, making those competitive throws over the middle, hopefully Austin Stogner, you know, can kind of help Dylan close the gap on some of those throws because there were a lot of times last year where, you know, whether that is that big play uh, down to Marvin Mims that he misses or, you know, converting that third and six over the middle that, you know, Dylan just simply missed, uh, you know, to no fault of anyone else's but his own. It's those little things. It's those, you know, small plays that can, you know, keep a drive going, keep the momentum going, uh, give your defense another two to three minutes of rest. Um, and, you know, I think that Dylan's consistency, um, he's going to be better th- this year, uh, you know, and he's in his, in another year of the system with Jeff Levy. 
but I'm not going to be one of those, you know, people, Adam, that's going to say that Dylan Gabriel was simply, you know, the reason why Oklahoma was six and seven a year ago. Um, I think that there were a lot of other, you know, external factors. You know, he obviously had his shortcomings, but also Dylan Gabriel for the better part of the season played pretty damn good football. Wasn't Heisman Trophy level uh, quarterback play like we've seen at Oklahoma, but he did enough for Oklahoma to win eight or nine, maybe even 10 ball games last year. If a few more things go Oklahoma's way and they can clean a few things up. So, um, Dylan Gabriel, that's not very high up on my list as far as some of the things that I'm super worried about going into this season. I think there's a few other positions around him where there's more questions than there are answers. So, um, he just needs to be better, um, clean up a few things, get that accurate accuracy percentage up, um, make some more throws. And I think that Dylan's going to be fine. Yeah. I thought we got a good response from uh, a Twitter user that just goes by the uh, UFO emoji. Uh, he said basically just DG simply just being a game manager, not trying to do too much. And I think we still think of a game manager as like the old school Alabama quarterbacks from like mm-hmm. 10 <sighs> years ago. But in this day and age, I think you can have a spread, you know, offense quarterback that can be a game manager that can still have 40 total touchdowns between rushing and passing still throw for over 3000 yards and just take what the defense gives you. This is a wide open offense Mm. that I think you can do that. Not try to force too much. Just, just live within the, um, you know, what the offense's strengths are. I think Dylan Gabriel can certainly be that type of guy. Um, But at this point we know what he is. He's going into what is his fifth year of college. And Mm -hmm. I think if you want him to be a Baker Mayfield or Kyler Murray type of impact of a guy, uh, he would need to improve by like 30, 40%, you know, above what he's already at right now. And we know what he is like he, we, we've seen his limitations. He's been in college for a long time. He'll probably improve 10% this off season. Um, but it's not realistic to expect him to go out and carry this team to a playoff the same way that Baker or Kyler did with those, those bad defenses. And so mm-hmm. we just have to understand that. We have to know that, hey, if this defense is doing their job, we should never have to find out exactly how good Dylan Gabriel is. Um, so, yeah. um, and anyone that thinks Jackson Arnold's going to be able to come in and, and do something that Dylan Gabriel's not, let's, let's hold our horses on that. Because Caleb Williams was the undisputed number one quarterback in his class back in 2021. And he came in and he had a great Texas game. He was excellent against Texas. He was good against TCU and Texas Tech. Um, but he was really bad against some of the uh, better defenses that that team faced. So Jackson Arnold's really good, but it's going to have to develop over time. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think Dylan Gabriel is, is fine where he is. We'll, we'll expect normal offseason improvement from him. But I don't think he's holding this team back from, from going to play in Arlington. Anything else here on uh, on football before we jump over to baseball? I did just kind of want to throw one, you know, kind of off off the uh, script question to you. You know, there's there's been so much coverage, there's been so many videos, so many interviews that have been put out there. As we, you know, kind of reach the halfway point of spring football, what's been the what's been the the best thing that, that you've seen from from the, is it a certain player? Is it a certain position group? What's been one of the one of the, your biggest takeaways so far through the first three weeks, of, three weeks of spring football that makes you say, okay, I like the direction that this player or this position group is going. I like what I'm seeing. Kind of feel like we're getting better. We're closing the gap. We're getting back to playing the brand of football that's going to be needed, you know, not just to win a Big 12 championship, uh, but to also, you know, reach our ultimate goal of winning a national championship as well. And it could be something small. Yeah, I don't know if I'll do a great job of articulating what what I'm hearing and seeing from this team. Last spring, we saw and heard a lot of guys say, 
you know, oh, this, you know, Brent, he's bringing in this culture and, you know, it's kind of like off the field type of stuff that they were talking about. I feel like now we're talking a lot more about on the field things from from the players themselves, um, you know, understanding that, hey, you know, last year we, we learned something and now we're building on top of that. Um, so it, it, you can sense some leadership developing, I think, in some of your key players that you want that from, like like a Billy Bowman or, um, you know, an Austin Stogner, even though he's um, coming back into this offense for the first time. Uh, but I feel like you, you have some leadership kind of breeding there from some guys that went through, you know, last season. Uh, so I think that's going to, I think that's going to pay off dividends as we head into, you know, this, this upcoming season. And I think we will see a, a second year leap for a lot of those guys uh, versus, you know, now, you know, we're just talking about something on the field. I think it's kind of the, the premise there that I'm getting at. What about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I could pick one specific player um, or a position group, but for me, collectively, this football team, it kind of feels like they the the level of commitment is, a, is at a much higher level than kind of what we've seen in years past, you know, especially, you know, the Alex Grinch, maybe the Lincoln Riley area, where there were a few things that they just simply let go. Um, I, I think that, you know, whether it's uh, the level of commitment in in the weight room with Jerry Schmidt, whether it's in the film room, whether you know it's the the attention to detail, you know the 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 little fine print things, the attention to detail, you know fine tuning your craft, um, I, and you know I think that that's probably been one of the biggest differences that we've seen, especially when you you hear from some of the things that Danny Stutzman has talked about, you know from a year ago when he was on the the podcast with uh, Jeremiah Hall and Braden Willis when he was talking about how when Brent Venables was teaching you know the fundamental and the schematics of playing linebacker in his defense, Danny simply, I don't know if he didn't take it serious or he couldn't figure out why, okay, what's the difference between me lining up eight more inches this way as opposed to staying where I'm at right now? And we see that, you know, Danny and the rest of the linebacker position, they're, they're starting to get why Brent is almost so anal or OCD about why he likes, you know, certain things the way that it is, whether it's from a fundamentals, a technique, from a, you know, a lining up standpoint. I just think that there's a level of accountability. There's a higher level of commitment to this group. Um, and we just hope, you know, once, you know, once the lights are on, once the whistle's blown, you hope that, you know, the, the little details that Oklahoma is, you know, placing a lot more emphasis on, you hope that that can translate into, you know, uh, more wins, you know, less yards given up, you know, just a better all-around performance from this team on both sides of the football. So, yeah, level of commitment and the level of accountability and attention to detail and really fine-tuning your craft at, at all 22 of these positions. feels like these guys are taking a step forward, uh, and that's uh, that's going to bode well for these guys moving forward. I agree, and I, I can't wait to see it on the field because it's all talk at this point, and we know how much that's worth, so... Um, but but yeah, I think I, that I think that it is clear. I mean, it is night and day that you can tell there is a difference when you, especially when you look at the defensive backs or you look at the linebackers. I mean, you go look at Jay Valai and Brandon Hall's group. Some of the defensive backs that we've got in the back end of that defense right now kind of look like some of the linebackers that we've had playing at OU, you know, over the last five to ten years. So we're as Oklahoma is trying to build their roster up before we transition to the SEC, you can definitely tell that they're recruiting to a certain body type. I apologize, dog. Amazon drivers here. But yeah, I like what I'm seeing. At this same time last Thursday, I thought we were going to have to reinstitute the Adams Optimism segment when it came to baseball. Uh, but OU turned things around. Um, you know, gave up 23 runs Thursday night to Stanford. A little 20 uh, after, piece. 
a little 20 piece after uh, losing the midweek game. Um, and then, but turned it around. Braxton Douthit, um looks like this team's ace right now. Came back on Friday, um, had a, a, a team shutout there against Stanford in a 2 0 victory. Uh, Saturday's mm-hmm. uh, game was uh, just amazing. A little bit of back and forth game. I, I was able to, to go see that one in person, and uh, it was great to see the battle that Jamie Hitt was able to. Um, you know, to have uh, from the mound there. He's starting to solidify himself, I think, as this team's, you know, second uh, day pitcher there. Um, and so OU gets two victories, splits the series with a top 10 Stanford program. I think going into the week, anyone would have taken that with the way baseball was was playing. Um, and then tonight, um, you know, just as we're, we're recording, OU takes a 12-2 victory over Oral, Oral Roberts, kind of the midweek game that you, you would like to see from this program on a regular basis. But um, you know, after a rough stretch of games, it feels like OU is starting to kind of equalize and find their footing just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, coming into this week, if you would have told me that Oklahoma, they're going to give up 23 runs in an opening game loss uh, to Stanford, but then they're going to figure out a way to split the series and ultimately, you know, kind of at least early on in the game on Sunday, have a chance to, you know, kind of put their foot down and, you know, give themselves a good position to take three out of four. Um, but Adam, I mean, are you, are you optimistic about this team coming out of the series against Stanford going into the rest of big 12 play, or is it really just kind of a, we're still in kind of wait and see mode right now. We don't really know what this pitching staff is going to look like from a rotation standpoint. There are a few good arms down in the bullpen, but there we're still trying to find a level of consistency uh, from this group. So how do you feel about the the kind of the the pitching staff going forward? And because I mean, you go down the schedule, you got trips to Waco, Austin, Morgantown, West Virginia, and then oh by the way, uh, you've got Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, and Kansas coming to Norm as well. So the uh, no rest for the weary. It's a very very difficult schedule as we move into kind of the back half of this season. How do you feel about this team moving forward? Yeah, right now Oklahoma strength of schedule sits right around 32, I believe. Uh, you got Oklahoma State and Texas Tech; those are our heavy hitters that we knew about. Uh, Oklahoma State actually lost to Wichita State uh, this evening, but uh, but then you know Texas and West Virginia, two teams that were not you know super on the radar for top 25, they're in the top 25. They look very solid. So I think this team, I don't want to call it wait and see necessarily or, or hold on them because um, you know I, I don't want to sit on the fence, so to speak. But there is some shuffling that's happening right now. We really haven't seen the complete team, a complete healthy team with the rotation that we're probably going to get. So um, it's officially Kale Davis no longer the Friday starter. He actually pitched uh, a little bit of an inning tonight against mm-hmm. Oral Roberts. So he's moving to the pen. He was your Friday night guy. Um, Braxton Douthit, um, he's going to adjust to the Friday night starter. Uh, and then Jamie Hitt's going to be your, your Saturday guy. And then it looks like on Sunday you're going to get Will Karsten going forward. So you're going to have a little bit different lineup there. I think that one's going to work a lot more effectively. I know Cale Davis has a fastball that I think you'd like to see out of the pen and a little bit shorter outing and say, hey, you don't have to reserve your energy or anything like that. Um, but then on the offensive side of the ball, you've got some good signs. Bryce Madrin's coming along. He's 12 for 20 uh, in his last five games with nine RBIs. Um, you're starting to see Spikerman uptick a little bit. Kendall Pettis is finally back from uh, you know the spider bite and the suspension that he got. Um, so he's, he's kind of back in the lineup. He's a key piece in my opinion. You'd really like to see uh, Dakota Harris come back. He's week to week, as as he's described right now, and I think he's this team's best hitter in my opinion. He's he's been the most clutch. I know Anthony McKenzie has the better batting average, but I think Dakota Harris's hits have been uh, more more impactful there. So um, you'd like to see this team get completely healthy, see that new rotation come into play, uh, and then see where they can go from there. Um, you know, this team can certainly play with anybody. If you look at 
what they've done from an RPI perspective, um, they've held their own against the best of the best that they've played. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, the over 200, the over 100 RPI teams that they have been playing, they've been <laughs> holding their own, I guess, about, you know, the same record that they have against the best teams. So, um, I guess you could call that consistent, but in my opinion, I'd like more mm-hmm. consistency so that, you know, that record against your, your bottom 100, bottom 200 teams is more of a, you know, three to one favor or two to one favor, mm-hmm. you know, record wise for OU versus a 50, 50. So this team, you know, a good step in the right direction, beating ORU tonight. Um, you're going to go down to Baylor, uh, on an early week again, Thursday, Friday, Saturday series, um, cutting off early for Easter this weekend. Uh, but Baylor's a team. You got to sweep them. You got to sweep Baylor. They're not a very good baseball team. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've given up a ton of runs to a lot of teams, uh, sweep them regroup. And I think you kind of reevaluate at that point. Like, can this team make that, that run, that stretch to a regional at that point, they've had a lot of blunders, a lot of games they blew, but, um, you know, I think they're, they're kind of shuffling into the right rotation on the mound, get healthy in your lineup as well. So mm-hmm. you don't have to constantly move so many pieces around in your uh, defensive lineup either. Well, Oklahoma continuing to find ways to lose the midweek game. A little bit of a shining moment here as we kind of put a bow on the podcast and wrap things up. Oklahoma did just go final. OU went on the road to Tulsa, knocked off Oral Roberts 12-2, to you know, racking up 17 hits collectively as a lineup. So um, we'll see if this can't be an opportunity to kind of springboard a little bit of momentum. Like you said, OU traveling down to Waco uh, for a big series this upcoming weekend. Figure out a way to, to at least take two out of three, maybe find out a way to sweep the Bears, get yourself up to back over five in Big 12 conference play before you really look ahead to the matchup against the Red Raiders next weekend at Eldale Mitchell Park. But again, um, I, again, as we sit here right now, 16 and 14 on the year, I mean, the, I definitely, um, the jury kind of is still out right now. Um, obviously not on skip coming off of a, you know, a, a, a college world series appearance. But again, the, the further that you get away from that and the more that the pitching cont- continues to struggle, you know, how much more, I don't want to say heat is the right word, Adam, but how much is last year considered an anomaly because of how dominant and how good of a group of arms that Oklahoma had in the bullpen and especially with the starting rotation. Um, so hopefully, you know, Skip Johnson can can keep coaching, figure out a way to continue to grow, you know, this young nucleus that he has uh, here at Oklahoma baseball. And again, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. We were kind of in the similar position this time a year ago and Oklahoma figured out a way to, you know, kind of get hot at the right time, close out the year strong and ultimately, you know, leads uh, leads themselves to a uh, College World Series appearance in Omaha. So not saying they're going to get back there, but as we sit here right now, I wouldn't bet against Skip Johnson. We'll see what this team can do uh, as we head down to Waco this weekend. Certainly still a lot of opportunities for this team to make up for any lost ground or bad losses because mm-hmm. they've got so many good teams ahead of them. Um, and, I, and this team has shown that they can compete with anybody. Uh, and they play some of the best there at home. So uh, that's going to wrap things up for us this evening on the Mainline Podcast. We appreciate everyone listening. Uh, you know, wherever you listen, if you would like, give us a five-star review and uh, be sure to follow us on YouTube and, of course, on Twitter uh, at the Mainline Pod. And we will see everyone again next week for another episode of the Mainline Podcast. <laughs>